There's some notes in the bulletin you can follow along with sermon this morning if you like to do that. Again, John chapter 3 is our passage. I just want to point out a few things before we really dig in and talk about the big idea and, and the truths that we need to take away this morning. I want you to note the fact that this passage begins with Jesus baptizing. That's in verse 22. Jesus and his disciples, they went into the Judean countryside. He remained there with them and was baptizing. If you keep reading just a little bit further in John, chapter 4, verse 2, it gives a little clarification, and it says Jesus himself wasn't doing the baptizing. His disciples were actually the ones doing it. So for any of you who think, how cool would it have been to, to have Jesus baptize you? Sorry, you're out of luck. Nobody had that happen. The disciples were doing it. Jesus was sort of overseeing all that. And at the same time, verse 23, John was also baptizing. And you'll remember if you've been here the last couple of weeks, John, in this gospel, always refers to John the Baptist, not to John the Apostle, or sometimes he's called John the Evangelist. Always John refers to John the Baptist. So you've got Jesus and his guys baptizing over here, and you've got John and his guys baptizing over here. And there's not a lot of backstory given. We just read this in in parentheses, at least in the ESV it's in parentheses. Verse 24, for John, that's John the Baptist, had not yet been put in prison. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. This little detail would fit perfectly with the rest of the sermon this morning, but it's not a major point in the text, and so we're just going to sort of include it here and not talk about it later. I want to give you the backstory. I want you to know what he means when he says John the Baptist had not yet been put in prison. John the Baptist was put in prison because he publicly criticized the quote-unquote, that's important, quote-unquote, marriage of Herod Antipas and Herodias. You can go back and look at Matthew 14. Let me give you the, the short Jerry Springer, Maury Povich version of this story, okay? There's a guy named Philip. He was married to Herodias. They lived in Rome. Herod Antipas went on a trip to Rome, and when he left Rome, he left with his brother Philip's wife, brought her home, and took her as his own wife. And you can just Google the Herod family tree. It's the most convoluted, crazy, who's the father, who goes where. It's a mess. It's a train wreck. And John the Baptist saw this happen. He saw Herod Antipas take his brother's wife and bring her home and pretend like it was his wife. And John the Baptist had the courage to speak out against this and to say, hey, what you did is not right. I know it. We all know it. You know it. And it cost him. Speaking out for a biblical view of marriage cost John the Baptist. It initially cost him his freedom, and he was put in prison for saying this. You can imagine Herodias did not like this crazy man, John the Baptist, going around saying unflattering things about her and her new husband. So it cost him his freedom. Eventually, it cost him his head. And there's a little reminder in here for those of us who follow Jesus, who like to sometimes throw the pity party and say, things are so bad now, things are worse, things have never been this bad, everything's going to hell in a handbasket, it's terrible. Listen, this idea that speaking out for a biblical view of marriage is going to cost you something is nothing new. It's not unique to the United States. It's not unique to the 21st century. This is old, old news. Standing up for the biblical view of sexuality and marriage will cost you. You. 
You're not going to get any pity points from John the Baptist looking at you and saying, oh, well, it's really hard in the United States to stand for the truth. John says, I know it's hard to stand for the truth, and you stand for it. And if it costs you, that's what you do as a disciple. So I just want to point that out. We're not going to talk about it as a major idea this morning. I just want you to see that, that point in the passage. And I want you to understand that up to this point in the Gospel of John, John the Baptist has been a major character, major character. He worked his way into the prologue, the very opening verses of the Gospel of John. He shows up. He's this this witness that's come to bear witness to the true light. He's not the light, but he's come to point people to the light. So he's been a major character. But now he starts to fade to the background. Right Up to this point, John the Baptist has been a major, major player in this Gospel. But now he just sort of starts to fade to the back. This is the last time he does anything or says anything in the Gospel of John. And there's a little bit of debate about where he actually fades out. And I'm just going to mention this briefly. This is the same issue we talked about last week at the first part of John chapter 3. Okay? In John 3, Bible translators don't exactly agree. Remember, there were no quotes in the ancient Greek manuscripts. They don't exactly agree about where the words of John the Baptist end and the words of John, the author of this gospel, begin. And this is the same question we wrestled with last week briefly. We looked at the first part of John 3, and we said, where does Jesus stop talking to Nicodemus? And where does John, the author of the gospel, jump in and start giving commentary? Some people think Jesus talks all the way through John chapter 3 up through verse 21. Some people think Jesus stops in John chapter 3 verse 15 and John takes, takes over. And your translation may have red letters in one place and black in another. It may have quotes that start in one place or stop in another. This the same issue in the back half of the chapter. Somebody comes to John the Baptist, the, just like somebody came to Jesus with a question, and John gives an answer, just like Jesus gave an answer. And then there's question about... Where did John actually stop talking? Does, does John the Baptist talk all the way through the end of verse 36, or does he stop actually up in verse 30? And I'll just put my cards on the table, my personal thought on this when I study it and I think about it. On the first half of the chapter, I think Jesus is speaking all the way up through verse 15. And then I think John, the author of this gospel, takes over with some commentary, some explanation. And then I think you see the same pattern play out. Someone comes to John, they have a question, John gives an answer, his words end in verse 30, and then there's commentary on the back end. However you want to split it up, wherever you want to put the quotation marks and and end the quote, there's one big idea that runs through this whole passage, and it's very, very simple. Here it is, the big idea. Followers of Jesus find their greatest joy in Jesus' glory. People who follow Jesus find their greatest joy in life. Not in anything that they do, not in anything that they receive, not in any credit or glory that comes their way, but they find their greatest joy in Jesus receiving glory. Look at verse 29. John the Baptist calls himself the friend of the bridegroom. Right? That's sort of a longhand way of saying, I'm just like the best man. I'm just in the wedding party. I am not the main event here. Right? No one goes to a wedding to see who's in the wedding party. You're just there. 
to make the people in the middle of the stage look good. And John says, that's what I'm here to do. I'm just here to make Jesus look good. It's not about me. I don't need the credit. I don't need the glory. I'm just here to make Jesus look good. Now, most of you know we're on the tail end of March Madness. And some of you had a really good day yesterday. Your Texas Tech Red Raiders came through. I'm going to be honest with you. I had a nightmare last night. And the nightmare was I got up to preach and you guys broke out in a Raider power chant across the sanctuary. (laughs) And at the end of the service, we just had to burn the whole building down. We said, forget it. We just start over. It's been desecrated. So Texas Tech won. Brackets have been busted. Everybody's excited. Everybody loves March Madness. We love the exciting games. And one of the things that I love about March Madness, uh, aside from my team winning, which we didn't do this year, is I love thinking about this question. What does it mean to be a fan of a particular team? Because this is one of those sporting events where everyone suddenly becomes an expert, right? At the end of the year, you're like, well, I picked a bracket. Of course I know something about NCAA basketball, and I have my favorite teams. And people have different ideas about what it actually means to be a fan. So here's a few possible definitions of what it means to be a fan. Some people would say to you, you can only really be a fan of a team if you went to that school. You know those people, right? Nose sticking up in the air. Well, you didn't go to that school. You're not a real fan. I went there, and I'm really a fan. Some people feel very strongly about that, and they say you can't really, really root for a team unless you went there. I think that's a little bit snobbish, but that's okay. Most people say you can pull for whoever you want to pull for, but most people also say, look, you got to pick somebody and kind of ride with them for a while. Right? You don't get to change all the time. There was somebody in my house last night during that tech game. I won't name who they were. It was one of my kids. That <laughs> narrows it down to four. They're, they're kind of passing through the living room, and every time they came through and the score was different, they're changing teams. <laughs> right? They were, they were a little bit upset that we went to the Kansas game in Lubbock and we just got humiliated, and so they're like, I, I don't know if I can pull pull for tech. And so if Gonzaga was winning, they say, yes, I'm for Gonzaga. I like Gonzaga. Then they pass through and tech takes the lead and they're like, oh, I guess I'll pull for tech now. Right? So some people just want to pull for the winner. And you say, I'm just a fan of, of whoever's riding the, the hot streak. Here's one more category of fan, at least one more important category. Sometimes you become a fan of a team just because you really hate the other team that they're playing. Right? So a week ago, Duke versus UCF, Zion versus Taco, right? I had done everything except paint my body black and gold. I mean, I was all in on the UCF bandwagon. I was riding the Taco truck. I was so excited. Come on. I thought they had them dead in the water, and I was really, really rooting for UCF. And you know what's funny? Like you th- I'm kind of joking, and you think I'm joking. But in the second half, I start thinking to myself, I really kind of like these guys. I really like, ta- I don't know anything about Taco Fall or, or any of these players on this team, but you start to think, I'm really rooting for these guys. I feel like I'm with these guys. Come on. And then they lose, and I could care less about UCF. I'm off the taco truck. I don't care about any of that. Got on the Virginia Tech train, and that derailed, and I'm going to be on the Michigan State train today, and that's probably going to derail, and then I'm going to jump in with you Red Raiders next week, and I'm going to be on the Texas Tech train. So sometimes we, we 
think differently about what does it mean to be a fan. And you can sort of have your idea of what does it mean to be a fan? Did you go to a school? Have you always pulled for that team? Are you just riding the hot hand? Or, or you want your bracket to come out? Whatever. We can argue about that. We can debate that. I want you to think about the definition of what does it mean not to be a fan of Jesus, but what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it really mean to be somebody who follows Jesus? And I want to submit to you that there's disagreement. There's lots of definitions and ideas floating around out there, and I'll just mention a couple of them. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? One answer would be uh, the intellectual. I think that's the first one I have up here, the intellectual idea. This is the mindset that says, look, there's certain historical facts about Jesus, and if you just will agree and accept that those are true historical facts, then you're a follower of Jesus. Just Here's the data, you receive it, and then we're going to sort of call you a follower of Jesus. I know people who would use that definition. Some people would prefer more of a transactional definition of Christianity. Okay, this would be the mindset of, have you, have you invited Jesus into your heart? Have you prayed the sinner's prayer? If you've sort of had this transaction with God where you've asked God to come into your life, you've asked Jesus to come into your life, you've asked God to forgive your sins, and he's done that, and you've trusted in Jesus, there's a transaction that's taken place. And some people would say, that's it. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You've you've had this transaction between you and the Lord. Some people would prefer more of a, a ritual definition. This would almost be like a sociological perspective on what does it mean to be a Christian. We say Christian... People do Christian things. Like they go to worship services and they sit in here and sing songs and listen to sermons or they pray prayers uh, according to their faith tradition or they give money. They put money in the offering plate or the offering box or whatever. They do these Christian things. And some people would take it out of the religious soci- sociological realm and put it just into a, a, a crass behavioral realm and say, look, to be a Christian is to try to be a good person and to not try to do all these bad things, however you come up with your list of bad things, right? We've got this behavioral checklist, and we sort of go through these things, and we say, this is what it means to be a Christian. You don't do bad things, and you try to do good things. The question is, what does, what does God say? What does Jesus say about what it means to be a follower of Jesus? And oftentimes what we do is we start with one of these definitions, We start assuming that one of these definitions is true. Then we come to the scriptures and we look for verses that validate our definition. And we basically tend to ignore the verses that don't line up with our definition. So we have our, our favorite verses. We can pull this. We can quote that. And we can say, look, this verse supports my, my view. But we just kind of don't think much about the verses that may not fit well with our definition. And a much, much better approach, rather than us coming to the scriptures with an idea and forcing the scriptures into our idea, is just to come honestly and openly and say, what do the scriptures say? I'm going to base my definition on what the Bible says. What does the Bible actually say about what it means to follow Jesus? And I think that's what this passage is all about. What do we learn? John 3, 22 to 36 What do we learn about following Jesus from the example of John the Baptist and the testimony of John 
the evangelist. And we're going to see John's example in verse 22 up through 30. And then we're going to see John give some commentary, some testimony, some explanation in verse 31 down through 36. And we're just going to answer this question. The first thing we see is very simple. Followers of Jesus know that every good thing is a gift from God. Followers of Jesus know every good thing in their lives is a gift from God. Listen to me. I know how simple that idea sounds to you. And it would be so, so easy just to look at one verse. We could look at verse 27 where John says, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. We could say, See, everything you have is a gift from heaven. It's sort of a circumlocution for saying God. It's a gift from God. We can just move on. But I just want you to think about the context in which this truth is is nestled, right? Think about the, the situation in which John spoke these words. Verse 27, he says, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. John has been baptizing for a while, right? He's out in the wilderness, he's calling people to repentance. When they repent, he's baptizing them. He's dunking them in water. That's one of the reasons he's, he's doing it. All these guys are baptizing where water is plentiful, not just sprinkling or pouring. They're immersing people in water. The old person, the picture of baptism says, is dead, and the new person has now come to life. And John's been doing this. Now Jesus and his disciples are doing it. And there's a problem for the guys who have been and who are still following John. Did you catch the problem earlier in this passage? It says this discussion arises and they come to John. And in verse 26, they say, look, the one you bore witness to is baptizing. Here's the problem. All are going to him. Is that true that all were going to him? It's actually not true if you read the verses that come before verse 26. It says in verse 23, John was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful and people were coming and being baptized. People were still going to see John. He was still baptizing people. The problem is the people coming out to be baptized were now split into two groups. Some of them coming to John the Baptist, some of them coming to Jesus, right? If you're in the John the Baptist camp, your share of the pie just got cut in half. Or maybe you're down to a third or a fourth. Who knows? There's still some people coming, but their perspective when they look at the situation is to step back. And they don't say, hey, a few of our people have gone over there. You can see that they're totally panicking. And what they say is, everyone's going to Jesus. All of the people are going to Jesus instead of us. In hindsight, you you realize how crazy that sounds, right? To say, this is a problem. Look at all these people going to Jesus. This is one of those things, these guys get to heaven or down the road, and they're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I said that. What a crazy thing to say. Like, I was upset that all these people were going to Jesus. But they're upset. They're upset because they don't really have this truth down in their bones, that every good thing is a gift from God. So they come to John and they say, John, we got a problem here. Jesus' crowds are bigger than our crowds. In fact, it feels like everyone's going to see this guy and it feels like no one's coming to listen to us anymore. And John looks at them and he says this, verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing 
unless it is given him from heaven. Everything we have came from God. That's John's answer. Right? The opportunity to preach, the people who came out and listened, the response and those who repented and were baptized, all of that was God. That was not us. And all those people going out to listen to Jesus and his disciples and be baptized out there, that's all of God. That's not, that's not those guys just sort of conjuring it up. That, God gave them that. I want you to understand that John the Baptist had this truth rooted pretty deep in his bones, this idea that every good thing is a gift from God. And in his life, it cut off the desire to compete with other people. He had no desire to compete. Why should I compete? If you have success, God's given you that. If I experience success, God's given it to me. If God takes it away from me, well, he gave it to me in the first place. Right? He has no desire to be envious of other people to look and to say, oh, I just wish I had that. He's not in competition with anybody. He knows that what he has was a gift of God. He didn't earn it or deserve it. Your money is a gift from God. I know you worked hard in school. or I know you worked hard uh, out in the oil field or teaching kids in the classroom. Whatever it is you do for a living, I understand that you work hard. But you need to also understand it's a gift from God. He gave it to you. You don't deserve it. He's blessed you with that. Your family, it's a gift from God. Your job is something that God has given to you. You don't get to take credit for that. Every good thing in your life is a gift from God. John the Baptist understood that. The Apostle Paul understood it. Look what Paul said to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? Like, name one thing. What do you have that God did not give to you? Right? We could talk about money. We could talk about family. We could talk about job. Paul's really talking to the Corinthians about salvation. Every good thing you have came from God. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. Name one thing that God didn't give to you. If you didn't receive it, why would you boast? Why would you brag? Why would you be proud of anything? It's a gift from God. John the Baptist understood it. Paul understood it. James understood it. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of light, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Every good thing in your life is a gift from God. And when that truth gets deep down in your bones, it stops you from being a boastful, braggadocious person. Because you realize, God has given me this. And it severs this desire that we wrestle with to compare and to compete and to be jealous and to envy. You, we don't worry about those things. People come to us, like these guys coming to John, and they say, John, we got a problem. Jesus getting all the attention. And yes, it's true, John knew who Jesus was, but John also knew that every good thing he had came from God. It wouldn't matter if it was Jesus or you or me or anyone else. John wasn't going to compete. He understood that every good thing comes from God. Secondly, followers of Jesus live to make Jesus known. Live to make Jesus known. Look at John 3, starting in verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ. I have been sent before him. 
The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, the best man, stands and hears him and rejoices greatly at his voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase. I must decrease. John knew who he was not. We talked about that a few weeks back. He knew he was not the Christ. And he also knew who he was. I'm here just to point people to Jesus. I'm this witness pointing people towards the Messiah. I mentioned weddings earlier. I want you to think back to the last wedding you went to. And I want you to think back, not just to the last wedding, but the last time you had to hang around after the ceremony for the pictures, everybody's favorite, the pictures after the wedding. Maybe you were family hanging around. Maybe you were part of the wedding party. Maybe you were the bride and the groom, right? The wedding ceremony's over. You're about to go to the party or the reception or whatever, and everybody's hanging around in the sanctuary or the platform or wherever you're at, and they're taking pictures. When you're taking pictures after a wedding, who's it mostly about? Is it about the mother-in-law? Oh, I hate to break it to you, mother-in-laws. Is it mostly about the best man and the maid of honor? Those are pretty important positions in a wedding, right? Pretty big deal. It's not about them. Maybe it's about the ring bearer and the flower girl. They're pretty cute, right? Not about them. Everyone else is sort of around, but the whole thing revolves around the couple. Let's be honest, mostly the bride, a little bit the groom, but the couple, right? That's who's the center of attention. And it would be very awkward if you were sitting out and you're watching the pictures after a wedding and the maid of honor says, I need to be in all these pictures. Eh, No, you don't. Or the mother-in-law speaks up and says, hey, I'd really like to be in all of these pictures. You don't need to be in all the pictures. This isn't about you. You're going to be in some of the pictures, but some of the pictures you're going to sit down. You're not the main event here. That's what John is saying when these guys come and they're upset. He says, look, I'm just the best man. I'm just a friend of the the groom. This thing is not about me. My job is to make him look good. And when he looks good, I rejoice greatly. My joy is complete. And when it's all said and done, look what he says in verse 30. I must increase, excuse me, he must increase, I must decrease. I need to move into the background and Jesus needs to move into the foreground. Is that a principle that guides your life on a daily basis? It's just worth stopping to think about. This idea that I need to decrease and be less important, and Jesus needs to increase and be more important. Is that something that shapes the way that you live your life? Is that something that shapes the way we, I'll include myself in this question, the way we interact on social media? I need to be less important. Jesus needs to be more important. Is that something that shapes your parenting or your grandparenting? That the most important things for my kids and my grandkids needs to be Jesus, not me. Is that something that shapes the way you spend your money? The idea that Jesus needs to increase and get more of the limelight, and I need to fade into the background and get less of the limelight. Is that something that shapes those of us who go on mission trips? That's one of the things I love about our church is how many people go on mission trips. Does that really motivate us when we go on a mission trip? 
that Jesus would get more of the credit and that we would just sort of fade into the background. We don't need the recognition. We don't need the, the glory. We don't need the praise. We want all of that to be directed towards Jesus. Followers of Jesus live to make him known. Number three, followers of Jesus recognize the authority of Jesus. Those who follow Jesus recognize, you could say submit to, his authority. Let's just have a, an honest moment. Hopefully, everything we've done this morning is honest, but let's just be real honest. Americans are not very good at submitting to authority. I, I don't know that anybody on the earth really is, but we're Americans, and so let's just be honest. We're not very good at it. It's not wired into our national DNA, right? Every year we celebrate rebellion, and we blow things up. We say, I don't care if there's a ban, I'm going to blow things up. That's what we do. We, we rebel. And you can say, yeah, we should have rebelled. Well, maybe we should have rebelled. That's, that's debatable. We could talk about that. I'm just acknowledging the fact that the whole nation started with a rebellion. And that kind of gets wired into your DNA. And I don't know 240 years later that we're really any better on this authority issue. I don't know that we're trending in the right direction. Politically, do you think we're getting better at respecting the people that God puts in power over us, or are we getting worse at that? And you can pick either side of the aisle you want to pick, or you can pick the aisle itself. I don't care. I don't know that we're getting better at that. In our families, when you just go around town and you watch families interact with each other, are children getting better at submitting to the authority of their parents? Does that seem to be on the rise? Teachers, maybe you could chime in here. Are your students doing a better job each and every year at submitting to your authority? Are you seeing a, a trend in the right direction? Followers of Jesus recognize His authority. When you're a follower of Jesus, you sort of swim against the tide on this issue. And the Bible tells us in all of those areas, right? Somebody's put over you in the Lord, you respect that person. Your parents, you, you honor your parents. You obey children, obey your parents in the Lord. Right? Citizens, if you owe honor to the governing authorities, show honor to them because God put them in power over you. Right? It wasn't just a, a poorly counted election and God's up in heaven wringing his hands so worried about who's in power. Show honor to the people in power. Right? In all these areas, we're sort of swimming against the tide, and especially when it comes to Jesus. People who follow Jesus recognize his authority. Just look in the text. Look at the last little paragraph here, verse 31. Jesus comes from above. He is above all. He has authority over everyone and everything. Why? Because he's not from here. He's from there. He's from above, and he's over us in authority. Look what he says in verse 32. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. And then in verse 33, you receive Jesus' testimony. You're setting your seal that God is true. To listen to Jesus, to believe that he's telling the truth, and to submit to his authority is to say God is true. Not to do all of that to Jesus is equivalent by implication to saying God is a liar. Most of us would not ever say God is a liar. But in the logic of what John's spelling out for us here, to reject the authority of Jesus is akin to looking God in the face and saying to God, the creator of heaven and earth, you 
are a liar. Look at verse 34 and 35. We talked about the Trinity last week, how the Trinity works in our salvation, right? The Father is is planning our salvation. He's sending the Son, and the Son accomplishes our salvation at the cross, and the Spirit comes and brings us to life when we're dead and applies this salvation to us, all working together. Well, guess what? Here's the Trinity, and they're all sharing authority. Verse 34, The one whom God sent utters the words of God. He gives the Spirit without measure. Jesus really is speaking for the Father, and Jesus and the Father really are sending the Spirit. Verse 35, the Father loves the Son, and he has given all things into his hand. I know the word Trinity isn't in there, but this is John spelling out the Trinity for us, saying this is a package deal. You don't get to pick and choose, Father, Son, Spirit, who you're going to take, who you're going to pass on, right? To accept the Son is to say God is true. To reject the Son is to say God's a liar. And the very same Father and Son send the Spirit without measure to give life to His people. Jesus speaks with the whole authority of the triune God. It's a package deal. And people who follow Jesus recognize and submit to that authority. Here's what we're not saying. I'm not telling you, obey Jesus and you become a Christian. I'm saying to you, people who are Christians, people who follow Jesus, are people who recognize his authority. And that gets spelled out with the last idea that's this. Followers of Jesus have eternal life because they believe in Jesus. Followers of Jesus have eternal life because they believe in Jesus. Look at verse 36. It's the most fascinating verse in the whole chapter. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That is so simple. I don't need to complicate it. You don't need to complicate it. If you believe in the Son, who He is, what He accomplished, you have eternal life. But there's a semicolon and there's a a statement on the backside of this. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. That's not what you expect to hear in that verse. What you expect him to say is, believe in the Son and you have life. Don't believe in the Son, you don't have life. That's not what he says. He says, believe in the Son and you have life. You will be saved by God's grace alone through faith in Jesus alone. You don't work for it. Believe in the Son and you have life. And then he turns around and he is not embarrassed to just describe it this way. He he agrees with James. He agrees with Paul. He agrees with the rest of the New Testament. He says, but understand this. If you don't obey the Son, you don't have life. Meaning, if you don't obey the Son and recognize His authority, you haven't really believed. You might be doing all the right ritual. You might be behaviorally checking all the right boxes. You may have uh, thought you entered into some sort of transaction here that sealed the deal. Believe in the Son and you have life. But understand, if you do not follow, obey, listen to, submit to the Son, you do not have life. You will not see life. Verse 36, the last phrase, don't miss it. If that's you, that you don't obey the Son, the wrath of God remains on you. We don't talk a lot about the wrath of God, and that's probably our fault. 
Because the Bible does talk about it. And John very simply lays it out and he says, if you believe in the Son, you have now, not tomorrow, not when you die, not just for eternity, but right now, you actually get it now, eternal life. You have it. Believe in the Son. Just believe. You have life. But understand, if you do not submit to his authority, if you don't recognize his authority, you don't obey the Son, you don't have life. You're not going to see life. And if that's you, the wrath of God, underline the word, remains on you. It's not just a threat that in the end God's wrath is going to come crashing down on you. It's that right now in the present, for those who do not believe in the Son, those who do not obey the Son, the wrath of God is upon you. One of my favorite theologians died a couple years ago. His name's R.C. Sproul, and he said this about God's wrath. A God who is all love, all grace, all mercy, no sovereignty, no justice, no holiness, and no wrath is an idol. It may not be a, a statue that you can pick up and carry around. It may not be an idol that sits in the middle of a temple that's been built with bricks or stone or timber or whatever. But it's an idol. An idol of your heart, an idol of your mind. To strip God of who the Bible says that he is, is to fashion a a God of your own choosing. This idea that God is wrathful is very important. It's something we can't miss. It's something that Jonathan Edwards described many, many years ago in one of the most famous sermons, maybe the most famous sermon that's ever been preached in the United States. Here's just a, a snippet from sinners in the hands of an angry God. He said, there are black clouds of God's wrath now, not in the future, now, hanging directly over heads, full of the dreadful storm and big with thunder. Were it not for the restraining hand of God, it would immediately burst forth upon you. The sovereign pleasure of God for the present stays his rough wind. Otherwise, it would come with fury and your destruction would come like a whirlwind. This sermon is famous because he paints in vivid language the horror of the thought that God's wrath is remaining on you. Listen to verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Believe. We talk about it every week in the Gospel of John. Believe. Not just accepting facts and checking an intellectual box. Not just sort of negotiating some transaction between you and God. Not just going through ritual. Not just changing your behavior. Believe. Believe in the Son and you have eternal life. But hear the warning. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. You read that verse and you feel the weight of it and you come away asking yourself, Pastor, what does it mean to believe in the Son? How can you spell it out for me? How can you describe it for me? And all I can do is not to give you a a canned definition, but it's to show you what the Bible says right here in the context. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Well, just it was spelled out for us. 
It's recognizing Jesus' authority. Not running from it, not, not pushing back against it, but submitting to it. It's living your life to make him known. It's about him. It's not about you. That's part of believing in Jesus, realizing you're not the center of the universe. He is. He should get the credit. He should get the glory. He should get the praise, not me. It's recognizing that every good thing in your life, including your salvation, is a blood-bought gift from the Father. You didn't deserve any of it. I don't deserve any of it. It's all a gift from God. And it's realizing, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? It's realizing my greatest joy will be found not in more money, not in more accolades, not in more degrees, not in more recognition, not in more social media likes. My greatest joy will be found in Jesus' glory. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. And John just tees it up and he says, believe in the Son and you have eternal life. Let's pray.